Hello and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is Tom McSweeney with the Maritime Ireland radio show, bringing you comprehensive coverage of the news, comment and opinion about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this month's edition, the third in the series, what value do we put on maritime culture, history and tradition? We're trying to keep going a culture, a heritage, a way of life, a tradition, something that's handed down to us. And like, it's a shame like to see it the way it, they're, they're, Look, we're getting, we're getting the vibes that they don't want us on the river. They're trying to baffle us with science. We're not scientists, but I tell you, we're not fools either. We can see what's happening. We want to be recognised as a tradition and culture and a heritage. We want that recognised, but we're not, we can't even get that. That's one of the last of the Irish draftnet fishermen who claims that the state is trying to wipe them out. On the programme, we'll also take a voyage around Ireland with the Naval Service. And as the cruise shipping industry opens up again, hear a question raised about Dublin Port. As for Ireland, things are definitely not going back to normal because of Dublin deciding that they don't want cruise ships anymore. Um, which to me is a, a bizarre business decision. And why are super trawlers that take huge catches of fish in Irish waters not more strongly controlled? Super trawlers without supervision is a great cause for concern. It baffles me that there's no requirement. And there's a lot more on this edition of the Maritime Ireland radio show, reporting on the maritime sphere, because the seas around Ireland, as well as our inland waters, our lakes, our rivers, are all economically and socially vital to this island nation. Draft netting is an old, traditional type of fishing. It's not drift netting, which has been prohibited for several years by government legislation. There are draft net fisheries in several parts of the country. This interview is with one of the last 16 on the River Lee in Cork Harbour. Jack Howard has followed his father in the tradition. Alongside his 18-foot open boat at Passage West, a town with a strong maritime tradition, he showed me a photo of himself as a youngster on the stern of his father's boat and told me he becomes emotional about trying to maintain the tradition. Well, draft netting is an old method of catching salmon. It's normally inside the nestery. You can't compare an old draft netting like with, with drift netting. Drift netting is a different way of catching fish all year. But it's hundreds of years old. And it has to be said, like, it has evolved. One time you had to have four men to operate the draftness. In my father's time, you know. But nowadays it's down to two because the nets are lighter. And of course the methods have evolved. So a draft net is attached to the bank of a river bank, at yeah. one end and the boat the other. That's right. And you're legally supposed to make a circle, right? But we got that whittled down with the old fish, so Western Fishery Board. I was a member of that board for, for a good few years. And we got the methods changed to suit the conditions and to shoot, suit the deer, do you know what I mean? You, you, can't, you can't fish with 21st century methods, do you know what I mean? 20th century methods, like, but, you know? So it has evolved. 
in that you've two men working it now and it's easier to work and you're allowed to stay out 40 minutes with a bungee rope on the shore so it can't be caused, called a fixed engine, right? And you're moving outside and you throw a cock out to every now and then. And that's the way it is done. And when the fish hits the net then, fish are too hit the net, or if they jump ahead of the net or jump in front of the net, you make a little circle, right? And you force them into it. Now, the one thing about draft netting, you're getting, you say, very little quota. You have a piece of paper yeah, there with, well, the, well, with, the, re- with the record of how you got it. In 2008, 2009, our quota for the 16 boats was 4,000 fish. Right? Last year, our quota was 567. If you divide that between 16 boats, it works out at 39 fish per boat. We had, we, we, we had a collective quota, but we had to go last year to an individual quota because the quota went down so much. The year before, we had 750. And the year before that, was around 800. So like, we can't understand why the quota is going down rather than up when the amount of fish in the last four or five years that have come into the rivers is phenomenal. Right? Unbelievable. They're trying to baffle us with science, but I mean, we're not scientists, but I tell you, we're not fools either. We can see what's happening, you know? That doesn't seem to me very much fish. For What's no. the season? The season then opens on the 12th of May and we're closed on the 31st of July. And last year, at the end of June, we were finished fishing. We had our quota cut and there was a ball of fish going up the rivers outside. And we were tied up after catching our 39 fish. I mean, in the name of God, Almighty. It's just shocking, it's black air. I mean, all these fellas that are fishing, like, They'd have part-time jobs, you know. They'd, they'd be on low incomes, you know. And fishing, like, is salmon fishing in particular, like, seasonal, they like, it's a big help, like, to their to their families, you know. It pay, pays the bills, pays your rent, do you understand? It pays, it pays everyday things that people in this day and age require and need, you know. How many draft net fishermen and boats are left in Cork? There's 16 left, though, and uh, the, the most of them are in Cork. There's one down here in Cove, there's one in Monkstone, and there's myself in Passage West, and then you have the Collins, the rest of them in Tivoli and the Quilligans, up in Black Rock and the Hegartys. You have a whole 16 good, honest, hard men, do you know what I mean? And are there draft net boats outside of Cork? There are. In Cremon, we are friends in Cremon. Uh, Dennis Tien is the head man there, he's the man. And uh, I don't know how many boats are there, but there's roughly around the same, maybe 18, 17, 16, to that effect, the same, I think, something similar. And the same, like, plenty of fish going up in the last couple of years. But and would Cork and Kerry be the main locations then? They would, but there, I, there's one in Galway as well, and, and the Boyne, I think. There's, there's, there's still draft nets, pockets, there's draft nets on the Blackwater, from what I can gather as well, like. Sounds like... Know. Sounds like traditional... Fishermen hanging on? Hanging on. We're trying to keep going. A culture, a heritage, a way of life, a tradition. Something that's handed down to us, you know? And, like, it's a shame, like, to see it the way... Look, we're getting we're getting the vibes that they don't want us on the river. Do you know? And who, mean, who's they? What's, I, well, to rephrase that, no, inland fisheries. You know? I mean, we've no information. We don't know what's happening. Why is the quota being cut, you know? We haven't any information. We don't know why. You know, we know there's plenty of fish coming in, and yet they cut the quota every year, you know. 
why... We come in last year, huh? and uh, our quarter, we had eight fish tagged, and that was our quarter gone. We, had, we were after finishing up. And the fishery officer came down to us, down to Strand, certain fishery officer. How are you going lads? I said, uh, we are finished. We have eight fish caught there, and we are, that, that's our season finished. My God, he says, there's a ball of fish up the river. So, is there representation from your group on inland fisheries? No, no. We tried and we tried and we tried to get a man on. A man from Waterford on, we tried to get a man from Kelly on, we got a man from me, me a man from Black Rock, to no avail. I was told I wasn't qualified enough. And what qualifications? I don't know. <laughs> I never asked him. But I mean, I wasn't qualified enough, I was told, yeah? That's as true as God as we judge. Why, why do you keep on fishing then, Jack? Well, with with all those... It, it's part of my life. Tis, tis, you know, I mean, it's all my life now, like, you know. I mean, it's all I have, you know, and I enjoy it and as well as that. It helps financially. I tell you, straight, there's a few bar for Christmas there, it's handy, you know what I mean? I mean, I have a pension, you know, a small pension, because you can keep the dog in it. If the quota's so small, who, who's deciding the quota and why? So we don't know, so we're not given any information about it. We don't know, we're just told, just told, like, your quota is given, that's it, take it. Take it or leave it, I suppose, do you know? So, I, I don't know. We don't know, we can't get any answers. We have no one on inland fisheries, we haven't a clue what's going on. So how do you represent your case? Have you your own group or what? We have our own group. We have an organisation, the Cochran District Draftnet Fishermen's Association. Do you know? That's our only... All we can do is go to a TD, right? We can't... Who else do... What do we do? Who do we go to? You know? We want to be recognised as a tradition and culture and a heritage. We want that recognised, but we're not, we can't even get that, do you know? What do we do? What, what can we do? This does seem to be a traditional fishery with very yeah. few left. So we've been pushed out. We're an indigenous organisation, do you know? We're hanging in there. Our forefathers, people belong to us, uncles, cousins, they all fished, you know? Everyone in the town here, would, anywhere where there was a salmon river, always you had people fishing and depended on it. And it helped to pay bills and done that. Do you know what I mean? When there was no work there in particular, like, you know? But it seems that, it would seem to me that with the age group, etc., in yeah. fairness, yeah. he yeah. could be wiped out. He could be wiped out. We could, yeah, we could. But sure, there's no young fella going to do it now, you know? Particularly, like, what the course is going the way it is, you know? We are strictly monitored. We have to fill out a logbook. I go out now, when I start fishing when the season opens, I put down the time I started fishing, right? The time I finished, how many fish I had, and whom I sold them to. They're the new laws that were brought in there about 10 or 12 years ago or more, like, you know. I don't mind, that's all right, we get over that, like. But we're very strictly monitored. You come in then, the end of the week, then a fishery officer will ring me up and ring the rest of the lads up. How many fish had you for the week? So that's you after being monitored again after you fill out your logbook and tagging your fish and selling them. And who did you sell them to? Every week without fail, he will ring every one of us. You know? I mean, if that's not been strictly monitored by his like, yeah. Yeah. you know? Are you going to keep going? I am. As long as I can go, I'll go. I'll keep going as long as the Lord above gives me health. But I get emotional over the times, eh? Of course. You know, you wouldn't blame me, like. It's very unique. Cork City, like. Ten minutes, fifteen minutes more from the city centre and you can see men operating a commercial fishery, do you know? Which is unique to the world, eh? Unique in any city in the world. Where would you get it? 
Cork Harbour Draftnet Fisherman Jack Howard, a traditional method of fishing, hundreds of years old. Brian Collins was a draftnet fisherman, but gave up. All I can say is the salmon fishery in our harbour and in the river is a very productive fishery. I can never remember a time when there was depletion of salmon stocks in the river here, never. They might have quietened down a bit, but they would always most certainly pick up again, you know. And what's happening now to the fishermen at the moment is a disgrace. It's a thorough disgrace that they have no representative body on the inland fishery, which means that Jack and those who are representing what's left of the draft of fishermen are getting second-hand information. And it's information that they can't work off of because the decisions are already being made. So what it's doing, it's affecting their livelihood, it's affecting their tradition. They're barely surviving on what they're, what they're getting with the quotas they're allowed now. And it's, it's, you know what I mean, they need... It's very important that they, they must have a representative on the Inland Fishery Board. It's very, very important to understand in order for them to survive and to keep fishing. You know, yeah. that's, that's basically the bottom line. The reason is why they're not left on it, you know, it's a question that has to be answered, you know. Saying that they're not qualified is, is under the, the desk because I sat on plenty of meetings with Jack and other representatives, different areas, and I can tell you Jack is one of the most educated men into it, into the salmon, into the drafting efficient that we have here today, you know. So, I mean, I mean, like, it, it, it has, something has to change, you know. The door has to be open to allow somebody in to represent the drafting fishermen. You know what I mean? They'll keep going, the fishermen will keep going as long as they can. Yeah. But what they need is they need to get together, get around the situation, push forward, in order that they'll have good representation for the rest of their days, you know what I mean? And for the fishery to continue on here in the harbour, you know? They'd need to do that now, like, and they'd have to have good, proper representation there, you know? Inland Fisheries Ireland responded to what the fishermen said with a detailed statement. Draft net fishing is legislated under the control of fishing for salmon order. Quotas are allocated based on scientific advice. The threat to draft netting on any river arises from the continuing decline in returning salmon numbers and illegal fishing, IFI said. Only in the absence of a quota will draft netting be prohibited. As in other fisheries, there is difference between scientific advice and what fishermen claim to see on the water. I was told that there are no fishing or angling representatives on the 10-person board of inland fisheries, nine of whom are state-appointed. The other is a staff nominee. Increasingly, I hear concern about protecting and preserving Irish culture, history and tradition. We'll return to the issue. Ireland's coastline is beautiful, wild, challenging, magnificent. For the next few minutes, we're going around the coast through the eyes of Kevin Mockenree, officer commanding and component of the Naval College, in a poem he wrote describing a naval patrol from and back to its base on Hall Bolin Island in Cork Harbour. 
It recalls Irish maritime history, tradition and mythological events and lists naval vessels of the past 75 years, which it commemorates. Actress Niamh Cusack read the poem on board the Ellie James Joyce in Dunlera Harbour. Outside our harbour rolls the swell. We meet it as we drive through the grey-green drumlins of the sea we know so well. From Roaches Point, east about, to the coast of gallant Wexford, these low-lying shores angle north, stretching all the way to Dublin. A coastline indefensible, but for the likes of us. This is a shallow, nasty sea. Sandbanks shift from their plotted places and expose the skeletons of other ships, less fortunate. We pick our way past the city, her bay redrawn by Bly, her buildings shelled by Helga, cousin of whom we seldom speak. Past the permanent prawn fleet, north about, and as night falls, lights glisten, a partial welcome from darkened Antrim. On a midnight race through Rathlin Sound, we hear the helpless clans of Sorley Bree screaming as they flee the blades of cruel Drake. No hero he. We glimpse a pretty frigate at Doe Castle, gold harp on a field of green, snapping at the mast. Then, out to sea. At Rockall, we note Brendan's niche carved in the stone present prior to any other's plaque or flag. Later then, as Mayo's slopes appear, we hear a merry French tune on the breeze. We pass Grogne Whale, anchored in Clue Bay. She waves. The tide ushers us towards Connemara, lakes gleaming. A pretty picture, but the coasts of foaming maw, and the spars of broken Spanish ships stick in its teeth. Foganwood's Inish Moor Le Clavor, Iserai Oyas, past Dearmid's Leap, where he and lovely Gronia gazed hopefully towards Tir Nanog. Sad to relate, we know it isn't out there anymore. We drop the hook near Dune and Or. Something more than Atlantic swells disturbs our rest. No peaceful sleep can be obtained, so out we sail again. Bantry Bay opens to our left, and we recall how Wolf Tone reached out for this dangerous shore, this treaty port. Our commerce here is a respectful nod to the O'Sullivan's local tax. Then out again, and east once more. Fastnet marks the bounds of the O'Driscoll's ancient rule. And Baltimore, those of the Sultan's grasping realm. The sounds of battle ring in Castle Townsend. Follow us to Kinsale, crescendo there and our spirits sag. 
the maritime dimension neglected once again by Ireland's military best. A momentary dip. We see that Lusitania's ghosts lie undisturbed. And then form one is flashed, in line, astern. This sisterhood returns to Cork, place most suitable for ships. Niamh Cusack reading Commander Kevin McEnry's poem about the naval service, Statio Bene Fide Carinus, the Cork Harbour motto, underlining in that poem Ireland's maritime tradition spanning the centuries, the recording provided by the naval service. Now Antonio Callaghan has a roundup of maritime news. The fishing industry is demanding a fundamental review of the common fisheries policy that is blamed for so much of the problems faced by the industry. Under it, the European Commission gave other nations the biggest catching quotas in Irish waters and restricted Irish boats to much smaller catches. Under EU rules, a review of the policy has to be completed before the end of this year. However, the EU Commission is trying to prevent this and to allow only a report on its operations to be carried out. That would prevent any improvement to benefit the Irish industry, which is calling for the fundamental review, as Sean O'Donoghue, Chief Executive of the Killybegs Fishermen's Organisation in Killybegs, explained. I'm blue in the teeth of taking this up with commission officials over the last six or eight months. They are adamant it is going to be a report, so we we have to move might and main to make sure it is a, a fundamental uh, review of the CFP, particularly on the relative stability. And we have to use Brexit, you know, as the catalyst for that, because we lost out badly in Brexit compared to anybody else. Marine Minister Charlie McConnellogue has set up a common fisheries policy review group to examine the issues for Ireland in what he described as a review. John Lynch, Chief Executive of the Irish South and East Fish Producers Organisation, headquartered in Watford, says a full review must be carried out. We want to see um, a full review of the common fishery policy and not just a report as the Commission were proposing. Well, to get a review is crucial, yeah. Commissioner Sinkiewicz has read a meeting within the kitty bags, and he did, and that day he promised us that he would have a review and not just a report. The wording from the Commission itself is all just says report, you know. But we're pushing always for a review, yeah. We actually want to get some changes made this time. The difference between two words, review and report, and how crucial they are for the Irish fishing industry. Next, to the retirement of three well-known figures in the maritime sphere. The chief executive of Dublin Port, Eamon O'Reilly, is leaving. He says he didn't expect to be still in the job 12 years after he first took it, back in 2010. He will leave in August. The company's board has begun the task of recruiting a new CEO. Two other well-known maritime figures who have retired are John Leach, Chief Executive of Water Safety Ireland, and Padraig Rath, the RNLI lifeboat mechanic at Claherhead in Louth. John Leach was 21 years with water safety. When I joined, the 10-year annual average of fatal drownings was 185. Today, it is 115, and thankfully, the trend is downward, he said on announcing his retirement. 
Before joining Water Safety, he was a lieutenant commander with the Naval Service and was involved in developing its diving unit. A five-year research programme costing €2.6 million Euro is being undertaken by two research teams from Dublin University to improve understanding of how Ireland's blue carbon habitats can mitigate climate change. These include coastal salt marshes and seagrass beds and could be important carbon sinks, according to the chief executive of the Marine Institute, Paul Connolly. His organisation is the main provider of the research funding. The Environmental Protection Agency is giving €400,000 towards the cost. Overseas, for the first time in its 224-year history, the USS Constitution, which is the United States Navy's oldest commissioned warship, has a woman captain. 39-year-old Billy J. Farrell is the 77th commanding officer of the ship, which is also known as Old Ironsides. Back on home waters... The Revenue Commissioners are planning to replace their two existing customs cutters at a cost of €20 million. The two present maritime unit patrol boats are the Fair and the Surveyor. In Fomar, the joint programme between Geological Survey Ireland and the Marine Institute will carry out hydrographic and geophysical surveys in the Celtic Sea, Atlantic Ocean, Irish Sea and Western Coastal Areas between March and November this year. This is part of the mapping of the physical, chemical and biological features of Ireland's 125,000 square kilometres of seabed. Also on marine planning, the Department of Housing and Local Government, which is implementing the National Marine Planning Framework, has launched Ireland's first online interactive digital tool for marine planning. It can be accessed at marineplan.ie. Finally, mermaids, maritime history and culture are the issues in a dispute over The Little Mermaid, the famous sculpture of the Hans Christian Andersen character, which has been a prominent harbourside landmark in Copenhagen since 1913. It recalls the tale of a mermaid who gave up everything for the hopeless love of a prince and was created and installed by Danish Icelandic sculptor Edvard Eriksson. His family heirs, who closely protected against copyright infringements, have sued the harbour town of Asa in the Jutland Peninsula for imitating the Little Mermaid. The town council on the Danish northern coast has rejected the accusation. Mermaids cannot be patented, it says. Should be an interesting legal case. That's the Maritime News. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. You're listening to the monthly Maritime Ireland radio show, bringing you the most comprehensive and informative news, comment and opinion about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. The cruise ship industry seems to be picking up after a two-year crisis caused by the COVID pandemic, and during which several cruise lines rationalised and ships were scrapped. That's according to the editorial in the UK magazine Shipping Today and Yesterday. Editor Nigel Lawrence gives me the details now and questions the announcement by Dublin Port that increasing freight and docking space would put limits on cruise ship calls. Yes, well, things have picked up in in the last couple of months with the restrictions gradually being lifted with regard to covid and uh, most of the cruise lines are now back in business. 
after a, a very long time without earning any money. There's been quite a few uh, scrappings of the older ships, which is always sad to see. Um, there's been bankruptcies as well. Uh, Royal Caribbean closed their Spanish subsidiary Pormontor, and probably the biggest uh, effect over here was the demise of cruise and maritime voyages. And that's resulted in all their ships ending up on the in the breaker's yard, which is very sad. And there are some big names changing, I see. Names like Rotterdam, Amsterdam, and there were some of the ones which have gone, such as the failure of cruise and maritime voyages, resulting in the scrapping of names like Marco Polo, uh, Magellan, all famous names. But the Vasco da Gama is still there. Yes, the Vasco da Gama was the former Staten Dam of Holland, America. And uh, she she was sold prior to uh, Cruiser Maritime's demise. And uh, she's operating for a Portuguese company. And so she's still going at the moment, yeah. We're seeing here in Ireland quite an interest. So do you see it as a sign that cruise ships will get back to be see you regularly again? I would hope so, yes. I mean, things are more or less back to normal. Um, as for Ireland, things are definitely not going back to normal because of Dublin deciding that they don't want cruise ships anymore, um, which to me is a, a bizarre business decision because most people going on a cruise go a couple of days early and stay in hotels and spend money. But um, obviously Dublin doesn't need that money. So most of the cruises that were due to start in Dublin have now moved to Belfast, which is a great shame for Dublin. It seems that Dublin is more interested in the freight, the commercial aspect of the freight as the big money maker. Yes, absolutely. But I don't think they realise what a spin-off there is from the cruise industry. Uh, a lot of those passengers that go to join a ship in Dublin will go back to Ireland for a holiday at a later date. They'll get a taste of it and want to come back. Um, but now this is all being changed. There's a few that are, have been redirected to Dunleary, um, but the majority of the cruises, and certainly the ones that are starting and finishing, have all moved to Belfast. One big point you make in your editor's log in the March edition, Nigel, is China is a big growth area for cruise ships. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it was starting to take off before COVID, but it's now a very big area, and most of the big cruise lines have diverted uh, some of their ships to China, in many cases renaming them with Chinese names under a Chinese company. What's the effect for the seafarers involved in all of this? There's been several people outside of the cruise companies that have suffered, uh, the seafarers notably. I mean, most of the seafarers come from Philippines, India and other such nations, and they've relied very heavily on their income. Uh, so it's proved a very difficult time for them. The cruise ships have had skeleton crews on, but nowhere near the number of uh, crew that they would under normal circumstances. I mean, the other factor is uh, is the actual provisioning of the ships. Ports like Southampton often provision five cruise ships in a day, bringing in millions to the local economy. And that's all been lost for a couple of years. Nigel Lawrence, editor of Shipping Today and Yesterday, my monthly read.
Now the Mar report, focusing this month on the Northern Lights, Aurora Borealis, seen from the sea, enchanting, amazing, a great celestial display, and now more visible from the Irish shore, as Justin Mar reports. Auroras have fascinated mankind for millennia. The late Babylonian astronomical texts from 568 BC include a clay tablet that is believed to be the earliest reliable account of the Aurora Borealis. Their significance has been interpreted throughout history in myths and folklore around the world. It's believed that many of the early Chinese legends surrounding dragons were inspired by the Northern Lights. The Cree Indians believed they were the dwelling of the spirits of the dead, while some Swedish fishermen believed they were the reflections of herring promising a plentiful catch. As far as we know, the Northern Lights should have been visible throughout human history. In fact, probably going back to the dawn of life itself. That's David Moore, founder of Astronomy Ireland. Aurora means dawn and the brightening in the sky. It's not always the lovely colors you see in photographs because the human eye at low light levels is not sensitive to color. So a lot of dim Aurora will look like even on a photograph, it looked like a green glow. To the eye, it would look like a white glow, which is exactly what you would expect at dawn. So there was always things about why is the sun rising in the middle of the night when it shouldn't be, and that would have scared ancient peoples. They can also be dancing and moving. So could it be a steps, a stairway to heaven? And ancient peoples, of course, totally bamboozled by this. What's really going on is way beyond their understanding of nature. They're going to make up any kind of a story. In 1619, the astronomer Galileo christened the Aurora Borealis after Aurora, the Roman goddess of morning. At the time, he thought the auroras he saw were caused by sunlight reflecting from the atmosphere. Today, we understand better how they work. So what causes the fantastical display of lights across the sky? The science behind it is radiation of the sun. The Earth is like a big bar magnet, and this radiation is charged. So it's attracted by magnets and gets pulled into the North Pole and the South Pole. They're particles of atoms, protons and electrons. And when they hit the Earth's upper atmosphere, they start to encounter the first atoms of our atmosphere a few hundred kilometers up. And they hit them and knock electrons flying. And this produces all kinds of interesting physics that gives out particular colors of light. Usually green is, is the most predominant one that's released. And they can get down to about 100 kilometers above the ground, and then the air really is too dense for these particles to get any further, which is good news because you know, even the highest flying jet aircraft are below 10 kilometers. So if you're 100 kilometers up, you're pretty safe from most of the radiation, at least the part that's glowing. The best places to view the Northern Lights tend to be closer to the Arctic Circle. The chances of seeing them in Ireland usually tend to be low. But recently, there's been a flurry of sightings. In Ireland, because we're quite significantly far away from it, uh, we would see it about 1% of the time, so 100 times less frequently. So when it shows up in Ireland, it's really something to celebrate. We've had a bit of a spurt recently at the start of 2022. We issued six Aurora alerts, go look for the Aurora from Ireland, in January. And halfway through February, we'd already issued six more. Uh, now, that could just be a fluke. But we are going through a cycle that the sun has. Every 11 years, the number of spots on the sun's surface, so these are slightly cooler regions than normal, it increases to a peak and then it dies away and increases to another peak 11 years later on. And we've just come out of the minimum 
section. There were times last year when there were no spots on the sun at all. At other times during the peak, you would count literally hundreds of spots on the sun. So the more sunspots there are, the more you expect the northern lights. And that hopefully bodes well for seeing it again in the coming months. But we certainly will see it in the coming years. So what's the best way to make the most of the opportunity to see them? Like many astronomical events in Ireland, flexibility and persistence are required. Follow us on social media. That's free of charge. I think there's, between emails and social media, there's about 100,000 people in Ireland who follow us that way. And if we see one of these explosions coming, will the, the powers that be, the scientists who monitor this, give predictions to when they expect it to hit. And we will just put it in simple English. There's no aurora expected tonight, late tonight, uh, or, or tomorrow, or whatever it might be. Usually they're fairly weak. So you'll need to find somewhere that has a clear northern horizon. And if there are any towns in the distance, you have to be very careful because if there's any Mr. Haze above them or clouds above them, the towns will light those up. And we've had so many false reports of northern light sightings. Just be careful. Follow our Astronomy Island's predictions on social media and then go out and just watch the north sky. The only problem is you might have to stay out from dusk until dawn. If you can't do that, just keep checking regularly. Now, if you're on the north coast of Ireland, great. There's nothing in that direction except open sea. If you're in the south of Ireland, Cork and Kerry, you still would see it. It wouldn't be quite as high up, but you've got plenty of scope for towns, floodlit buildings, anything in the way to spoil the view. And I don't want to put anybody off because I remember, gosh, it's, it must be going, it's going back to the 1990s. And there was a huge explosion on the sun. We were all expecting a roar. And our officers at the time on the south side of Dublin City. And by the time it got dark, there was a huge pink glow in the sky. That was the aurora. We drove over to the north side to pick up one of our club officers. And he said, as he was coming out of his house, where will we see this aurora? And I pointed up above his chimney and I said, there, above your house. So if you can see it from almost the centre of Dublin City, when it's very strong, you can see it anywhere. Astronomy Island also arrange expeditions towards the Arctic Circle to get a better view of the Northern Lights. You can find out more at astronomy.ie or by joining their Facebook group. The celestial display of the Northern Lights, Justin Maher reporting. The Dutch-owned Estonian-registered supertrawler Marguerite left an appalling sight behind it in French waters. A hundred thousand dead fish. The owner said a net broke. The Sea Shepherd environmental group, which filmed the scene, disagreed. French fishing authorities have been investigating. The vessel's European Union quota was to be deducted from the size of the loss after which the vessel, previously banned from Australian waters, was discovered off the west coast of Ireland, fishing where it has a catching quota. And that's also from the European Union. Marine biologist Kevin Flannery, formerly a fisheries officer with the Department of the Marine and one of the main people involved in Dingle Ocean World in County Kerry, is very concerned about this. I am, Tom. I am obviously... Super trawlers without supervision is is a great cause for concern. Like uh, we have in Ireland, we have one of the most restrictive uh, inspection regimes within Europe, and I, I should know I've worked within it, and it has actually got more restrictive since. And then when you can, what's out of sight, out of mind seems to be the attitude with the super trawlers, 
where they can work away off of the west coast of Ireland and the west coast of Scotland. They freeze and then they steam off and they can land in various places into ports like Las Palmas or down in Mauritania because they can freeze. And so, therefore, they're not liable for the fresh fish inspection that our fleet, the Irish fleet, because we have the RSW fleet, and we, but it, they're all fresh fish fleet and they have to land their fish into a report so therefore there are inspectors waiting for them so they are liable for more inspection than anybody else whereas these very large factory vessels when and if they go to the likes of Canada or the US or other waters those when they are left in because the Marginus was not left into the Australian waters she wouldn't be allowed in there but they are required to have observers even the Portuguese and the Spanish vessels that fish off of the Grand Banks, are required to have two observers on board. And the observers are paid for by the company, but under the supervision of the government. Now, I can't see why the European Union can't demand the same, because the fairness of, of the inspection regime is very unfair and is favoured towards freezing your fish at sea and steaming off and going away, whereas when uh, ordinary trawler man comes in, he's liable to have inspection because the inspectors have to have X number of inspections done. They have to justify their existence. And when you come in with your couple of boxes of prawns or your bit of whitefish or your bit of mackerel, you're liable to be inspected. They have quotas from the European Union which allows them in. So the obvious question does arise, what's stopping the European Union from putting inspectors, as you say, on board? This is the, the big question. I mean, uh, we've had the Green Party has been very powerful in Europe, especially in Germany and those places. But it, it baffles me that there is no requirement under the common fishery policy for vessels that don't go back to their home port or that can freeze more than 100 tonne or more than 50 tonne of fish on board, that there is no requirement on them. Yet, even, as I say, after the African countries, they're legally required to have observers on board. So I'm actually baffled. But when you break it down and you see who controls these vessels, up to 30 of these vessels are controlled by two German companies out of Nymuden. And obviously they're registered in Germany, registered in France, registered in Lithuania. And those governments seem to be quite happy that the court that they ascertained and got um, with the development of the common fishery policy quota system in the 80s, they seem to be, we have it, we're going to hold on to it. It doesn't matter who catches it as long as it's caught under our flag, be it so-called Spanish-owned vessels like the French have at the moment. They have 33% of the European quota of Irish waters. Yet it is virtually Spanish-owned vessels registered in Bayonne and various places in France that are catching most of their fish quota at this point. The same situation occurred with the Germans who have a three or 400-ton monk quota off of the west of Scotland, the west of Ireland, and yet they're caught by Spanish-owned vessels who never land into Germany, no more than the Marginus has ever landed into Lithuania, or possibly even been inspected by Lithuanian authorities while it's fishing. Kevin Flannery in Dingle, concerned about super trawlers. Ever thought of a career in diving? Commercial diving provides a different type of maritime career. According to the Programme Director at Bordeski Warriors Diving College in Castletown, Bear Brian Murphy. So what about becoming a diver? BIM in Castletown Bear at the National Fisheries and Diving College offer two 
commercial diving programs. The first program called the Commercial Scuba is really it's the entry level course into the world of commercial diving. And currently, anybody carrying out any diving works in Ireland is required under the current regulations to hold a commercial qualification. So that first level commercial scuba will allow people to do a range of underwater tasks, but but basically the sort of the, the, the simpler stuff in working terms. So inspection work, um, survey work, um, underwater filmmaking, safety water work and things like that. So it's limited in what you can do. But it is a commercial qualification. And as I said, it's the first step in the ladder for a commercial diver. When are these courses available at BIM in Castletown Bear? We're about to start now with a commercial scuba programme. And that will run essentially for five weeks. And then we follow on straight from that then with the next programme, which is the next step in the ladder. And that is the surface supplied uh, diving programme. And that, as the name suggests, the, the diving equipment that the diver is using is equipment where the, the air or the gas for the diver is supplied using a, a sort of an endless supply of gas from the surface to the diver via a diver's umbilical into either a, a full helmet or a band mask, which is a, another lighter weight version of a sort of diving helmet that allows the diver then to work in more challenging environments and on that course, then, they learn additional skills in terms of the use of tools, power tools, hydraulic tools, underwater cutting, burning, welding. So it's kind of preparing them for the more serious underwater work, civil engineering projects and things like that. Is there a good career, then, available in commercial diving? Well, there is, yes. And like most other industries, it goes through cycles. But currently, there is a lot of demand for um, commercial divers, first of all in the agriculture industry, which is the reason that BIM are involved in training um, of divers. So divers are required for working on fish farms and as that industry grows, more and more divers are acquired. There was a lot of divers trained probably about 10 years ago. Those guys are moving on. There's new opportunities there for, for young blood to come into the, the system. Um, and also as well then in terms of sort of civil engineering projects. There's a lot of construction work, marine construction work going on around the country. And then further down the road, we have the, the whole offshore wind energy um, coming to Ireland as well. So, yeah, it's a good time to be getting into commercial diving. And it's a, it's a great career opportunity for people who are looking to do something different from the sort of mainstream stream jobs that will be out there. And you have that experience yourself. You've been in diving like that, obviously. I have indeed, Tom, yeah. I started diving in my early teens and then once I, I left school, um, I started working in the sort of the recreational side of the industry, first of all, but very quickly then um, found myself over in the UK in Fort Bobbison being trained and funded by the time by ANCO and um, that's where I did my first commercial diver training course and that would have been in the early 80s and um, I've been working in the industry um, between the North Sea and back here in Ireland for a number of years. And more recently then, I've been involved in the whole training end of it. And that's the kind of the side of the, the industry that I'm focused on now. But I would have worked offshore in the North Sea um, and various other places, both as a, an air diver and as a saturation diver, um, and spent my, my years learning the trade um, in those places and here in Ireland as well with civil, civil engineering projects too. So a combination of all of the above. 
Working in the North Sea sounds uh, challenging. Is diving dangerous? What people listening now might be asking, it's a great career, but is it safe? Well, well, it's potentially dangerous. And what the training does, what the industry does, is it aims to provide a safe place of work. There is always risk, but it's about risk management and making sure then that everything is in place in order to reduce the risk. And that includes the training, having the right people for the job, proper risk assessment, proper controls in place. So the risk is always there, but it's managed. And when you're working in environments then like the North Sea, well, that risk goes up based on weather, location, depth of water, nature of the job, underwater visibility. So, so it is, but that's, I suppose, part of the attraction to it as well. It's, um, you're, you're right out there at the edge of your comfort zone and you're fully focused and um, you're, you're working in that moment. So, and you have a team around you as well, which is one of the, the big things, I suppose, that differentiates recreational diving from commercial diving. Commercial diving is driven by the team and everybody in that team has a role to play and that is to keep the divers in the water safe through observation, gas supply, monitoring, depth, time, all of the things that it takes to keep the divers in the water safe. So potentially dangerous, Tom, is the answer to that, but kept safe through controlled risk assessment and management. It must be an amazing experience to be going under the water. It must be amazing as a personal experience. Well, it is, and that experience changes depending on where you find yourself. So, you know, in some situations, I would have a memory of of traveling from the sort of through the interface. So in a diving bell, having left a saturation chamber um, on the top of an oil rig, then being lowered down and seeing out through the porthole the light of a sunrise over the North Sea and then disappearing down into the, the deep, dark depths down below and working down there. And and those things do, I mean, they, they create interesting memories, all right, and they certainly um, put you in an, an interesting environment in, in terms of work. So it's unusual work. It's a little bit like, you know, sort of working in space, except it's inner space as opposed to outer space. The logistics, the equipment, and the experiences are all, you know, quite, um, I suppose, um, interesting would be putting it mildly. But yes, it, it, it is. It, it's a great environment to work in it's it it as you said earlier on it, it can be challenging but always very interesting as well tom brian murphy diving program director at bordies kiwara where the next course in castletown bear college is on surface supply diving and starts on april the 11th Next to Inishalar Island and Clue Bay, from where Rhoda Twombly, secretary of Kogal Ilona Heron, has the latest news from the offshore islands. Hello, Tom, and hello to all of Maritime Ireland's radio listeners. One of Kogal's focuses for this year is housing availability on the offshore islands. This is a hugely important factor in our sustainability. A survey to assess housing needs and issues is being designed by UCC following on to their work on the West Cork Islands, which studied housing and sustaining communities. Feeding into the design of the survey will be information garnered from four regional forums whose purpose is to compile and feed into the shape and direction of the survey. There will be one session per region 
with 8 to 10 people in each group. The collated data and ideas will help guide a plan of action for the offshore islands. The recent announcement by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland of funding for island homes which undertake energy-saving retrofitting measures has sparked huge interest among island communities. There is, however, a lack of clarity around the details of the grants, such as what is covered and the procedures for claiming funding. The Board of Kogal has written to Minister Eamon Ryan pointing out that islands need extra funding, as any work carried out on an island is at least a third more expensive than on the mainland. Islands also need a fair chance to compete for contractors. SEAI stipulates those participating contractors must have an annual turnover of at least a million euro, which would eliminate any island-based contractor. Minister Ryan has agreed to a meeting with the board members to discuss the issues. Kogol also pointed out that islands are recognized as being well-situated for forward-thinking pilot projects and would be keen to explore innovative avenues, especially those creating a greener future and more sustainable energy at a lower cost. It was suggested that SEAI conduct workshops and or roadshow tours of all the offshore islands that would be hugely beneficial in helping to work with islanders to understand grant requirements and processes. With the hope that the horrid weather of February is behind us, it brought 28-meter waves off of Donegal, 151-kilometer-per-hour gusts here on Inishlaer, and damage to island piers in several places, plus endless rain. We will heartily welcome spring. So, slán from Inishlaer and the offshore communities till next time. Last month, the Russian naval exercises off the south coast were causing concern. Naval sonar causes problems. Dr. Simon Barrow, Chief Executive of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, joins me with an analysis. Well, Tom, the recent Russian military exercise in Irish waters provided a huge media story worldwide, a huge international marine story, a story which addressed issues which rarely get media attention. Military exercises and actual military activity are not uncommon in Irish waters, but we don't get to hear about them. Often the only evidence of this activity is unusual strandings of sensitive species. Peaks in strandings of Cuvier's beaked whale in 2014-2015 and 20-21 were suspicious and hinted at an unusual event, but the strandings of 24 Cuvier's beaked whales in August 2018 was unprecedented. When these strandings were added to the 70 plus recorded in Scotland, this became the largest mass stranding of beaked whales ever worldwide. Eventually, after overwhelming evidence, including drift modelling, which identified the origin of Northwest Ireland, the Royal Navy admitted they were operational in the area at the time. Beaked whales from the Sam family Ziphidae are particularly sensitive to active naval sonar. It's thought their preferred habitat on the shelf edge and in canyons results in this sonar reverberating within these canyon systems, increasing their exposure to the sound source. The whales, which are the deepest diving of any species on the planet, surface too fast and they die of the bends. 
The frequency used by mid-frequency sonar at 1 to 10 kHz is close to the 42 kHz peak sensitivity used by the whales, results in a deadly combination resulting in these mass mortalities. Clearly the use of active sonar in habitats that hold sensitive species such as beaked whales should not be permitted. This is easy when banning military exercises from these areas, but much more difficult when military activity is being used to address a perceived threat. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group will be proposing the northwest slopes as a marine protected area for beaked whales and other deep diving species, such as sperm and longfin pilot whales, and requesting that all military exercises are restricted to outside the MPA and buffer zone. But how to deal with operational military activity? At the very least, the use of active sonar should be logged with the Irish authorities. Currently, our only record of their use is if we inadvertently record them during acoustic monitoring, such as happened in the Observe Acoustic Project. On top of the debate about military activity in a non-NATO country like Ireland, the Irish fishing organisations highlighted the right of fishers to work free of threat from military activity. This certainly drew attention to the realities of fishing offshore in Ireland, a job few people would ever think about. The Irish South and West Fishermen Organisation, the IFPEA, have done us all a great service. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group concerns about the impacts on whales and dolphins do not have the same leverage as the right to safe fishing. IWDG are very happy to support their call for a 10-year moratorium on military exercises within the Irish EEZ. We would also like to see the use of active sonar added to the National Marine Noise Register. It is also good to hear the commitment from the Irish South and West and the IFPEA to protect our marine biodiversity as well as commercially important fish stocks. This is a shared ambition to see healthy, vibrant, rich and productive seas off-island, supporting sustainable fisheries and rich marine biodiversity. Dr Simon Barrow, Chief Executive of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. And so we end this edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show Monthly, reporting on Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. Sound supervision by Justin Marr. Next month we'll remember the last man hung from the yardarm by the British Royal Navy. He, like me, was from Cork, and he too was named Tom McSweedy. Quite a coincidence, and quite a story, with a new ballad about the man concerned. The programme email is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872 555 197. That's email maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872-555-197. Until next month's programme, there's daily maritime news on Twitter and our weekly newsletter on Facebook and the website tomacsweenymarine.ie. Until next month, usual wish of fair sailing.